to this day. If you would, turn now to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 18. Gospel of Matthew chapter 18, and we will read verses 15 to 20. Matthew 18, beginning at verse 15. Again, this is God's word. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. And God's people say, Please be seated. As we have seen in the readings of the scriptures this morning so far, uh, we can see that church discipline has always been an element of church life, of living within the covenant community of our Lord. But since the days of the Reformation, this one particular mark of church discipline has become what we refer to as one of the three marks that define what a true church actually is. According to our Reformed faith, and as all those denominations that also trace their roots back to the Protestant Reformation, A church that fails to faithfully administer church discipline is no true branch of the visible church of Christ. That's how important this practice is. Church discipline, together with the faithful preaching of the gospel and also the right administration of the two sacraments, are what define a true church. A church that is lacking in any one of these three marks is no true church. It is a false church. But sadly, the mark of church discipline seems to be one of those marks that is difficult to find in many churches today. No doubt there are a number of reasons, they are all poor reasons as to why this is so, and uh, we're going to open our time together this morning considering just a, a few of those reasons that people oftentimes and churches oftentimes put forth in order to try and satisfy um, their, their disregard for practicing this particular mark of the church. 
So then, what are some of those reasons why it is that this mark of the church is neglected or why it is, it's not practiced at all in some quarters of the church? Well, to begin, some churches view church discipline as a hindrance to church growth. They don't do it because they fear its impact on the growth of the church. And so many people or many churches look at this practice of church discipline and they conclude that, well, if we start doing this, well, people are going to be turned off by it. It's not going to make us very attractive uh, to people if we start actually instituting the, the biblical practice of church discipline. So, so they don't practice it out of fear that it might make their church less attractive, less attractive to the seeker or to the visitor. But brothers and sisters, uh, I'm sure you know this, we must be more concerned about offending our king than the possibility of offending a visitor. And in the end, we must be fully persuaded that Jesus Christ and him alone, he alone is the one who builds his church. And so since he's the one who builds his church, we can trust that he will do so. He will build his church regardless of of how people might react to witnessing the faithful observance of what he has commanded his church to do. In fact, being faithful in this area might even be used of our Lord to attract people to his church. Because it shows we take the Bible seriously. Some churches view church discipline as being something that's legalistic, and that's why they prefer not to practice it. It's legalistic in their mind. They insist that Christ's church is to be a place that is full of grace through and through. And that any sort of discipline is contrary to grace. But my friends, church discipline is not legalistic. And by now, I hope if you've been with us for any length of time, you should know that legalism, properly understood, is uh, is not obeying God's law. Okay? But it's adding to God's law. That's one aspect of legalism. It's adding men's law to to God's law. It's men enforcing man-made laws or man-made interpretations of God's laws upon others and binding their conscience to the traditions of men. But of course, legalism can also pertain to emphasizing the obedience of God's law for the purpose of salvation, that as though you can obey the law and be saved by your law keeping. It's another element of what legalism is. But as we see from the text before us this morning, church discipline is not a man-made practice. And we know that because God himself is the one who has instituted it. Church discipline is God-ordained. These aren't the imaginations of men coming up with these things. This is what God's word has prescribed in his holy word. It's not legalism, therefore, to do what God says. It's not legalism to encourage others to do what God says. It's unfortunate, isn't it, that the term legalism is thrown around so much today by so many who don't quite seem to fully understand what it means. They keep using that word, right, but really don't understand what it means. And so we don't get off the hook of our responsibility to obey God's law by simply playing the legalism card. 
It doesn't apply here. Some churches view church discipline as an unloving thing to do. Again, they would say the church is to be all about love and all about grace. But again, my friends, church discipline is not unloving. In fact, the very opposite is the case. The scriptures teach us, do they not, that to not discipline our children is to hate them. It's to show hatred toward your children if you don't discipline your children. Okay? The scriptures also teach us that our Father in heaven disciplines those whom he loves. And we're further told that to love God is to keep his commandments. And one of his commandments is to faithfully practice church discipline. So it can't be unloving. When it's done according to God's word, church discipline is an act of love. And to not do it is actually what is unloving. To allow a person within the fold of Christ to go on in unrepentant sin and to not say or not do anything about it is an unloving thing to do. To not warn somebody of the danger that they are in and going down the path that they're going down is an unloving thing to do. Furthermore, it's also a violation of the Sixth Commandment. Now, some churches claim that uh, the practice of church discipline is judgmental. And because it's judgmental, it's unbiblical in their eyes. Surely you've heard people say that no one has the right to judge another. People are quick to quote that passage out of context, which says, judge not lest you be judged. Folks, uh, I trust some of you will recall when we went through our series on the Sermon on the Mount that the point that Jesus is making there is for us to not judge unfairly or unjustly, lest we be judged in that same way. It echoes, does it not, the plain teaching of Scripture, which teaches us to do unto others as we would have them do unto us. Additionally, the scriptures clearly teach that we are to judge certain matters. In chapter 7 of the Gospel of Matthew, we're told that we will know people by their fruit. Well, how do you make that connection? How do you know what is good fruit and what is bad fruit without making a judgment call about what you see? Right? You need to make a judgment call about the fruit in a person's life in order to get an idea of where they might be in relation to the kingdom of heaven. Furthermore, speaking to the multitude, Jesus said this in John 7, 24. He said, do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Jesus commands us. To judge with righteous judgment. Paul, writing to the Corinthians and the immorality that had been going on there between one man and his father's wife, said this in verses 12 and 13. He said, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. Remove, Paul says, the wicked man from among yourselves, that is, from among the church. 
So in that passage, Paul readily admits that the elders are the ones who've been given the responsibility to make judgments within the church concerning sin and immorality among her members. Another reason for the lack of church discipline in the churches is due to the rise of individualism. Some people will not accept the fact that they should be held accountable for what they believe and how they live. They believe these things are personal. It's just between them and God alone and that nobody has a right to question them about what they believe or how they live. These people, we might say, think that they are islands unto themselves. But the fact is, my friends, the church is a body. The church is a family. And we're to be involved in each other's lives. We're supposed to care about what people believe in this family. And we're supposed to care about how people live within the context of this family. And there could be no doubt that our Lord Jesus Christ has structured his church in such a manner that there is a biblical form of authority that we are to to be subject to in matters pertaining to our beliefs and also our conduct. In fact, the scriptures tell us plainly that this is the case. In 1 Peter 5.5, Peter commands and exhorts the people of God with these words. He says, be subject to your elders. Be accountable to your elders. That means there's a place in the life of the church for the people of God to be in submission to an authority. Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. In First and Second Timothy, Paul mentions the fact that he and the elders there had excommunicated Hymenaeus and Alexander. And why were they excommunicated? Well, for teaching false doctrine and for blaspheming. And so we are to be accountable to the elders in the church in matters pertaining to what we believe and how we live. James Bannerman, in his work, The Church of Christ, said, A solitary Christian is a contradiction in terms. And he's right. Christians are not to live in isolation from the rest of the church family. If you belong to Christ, you should also belong to his body, which is the church. It was the church father Cyprian who famously said, he cannot have God for his father who does not have the church for his mother. How can you say you belong to Christ and you value Christ, but you don't love his body? You won't join yourself to his body in a formal sense. Now, some churches don't practice church discipline. And this might be the most, the one that is most uh, able for us to uh, sympathize with. Uh, with and that is that uh, it's, it's simply a difficult thing to do. <laughs> That's why a lot of churches don't do it. It's, it's a difficult thing to do. And we can understand that that is the case. It is a difficult thing to do. 
I mean, let's face it, it's easier to not do it. Far easier to not do it. Church discipline, especially the the corrective sort of church discipline, is some of the most difficult work that the elders are given to do. And I can tell you that if it were just left up to us, we would prefer to not have to do it. And I think that's true of most elders. They would prefer if it's just willy-nilly, you can take it or leave it, it's up to you, what do you want to do? Well, I'd rather leave it. But as we will see, it's not up to us. Christ our King, Christ our King has delegated this responsibility to us and he requires us to be faithful to do it. Now, no doubt, some people are fearful of any thought of church discipline because, well, uh, perhaps they've experienced some terrible things in their lives or they've known or heard about other people who've had bad experiences along the lines of church discipline in a personal way. Some people know of discipline cases that have gone bad or discipline that's been applied wrongly. And so when it comes to how they feel about it, they're quite gun shy. But the truth is, discipline can be exercised sinfully. That's true. There are some elders within churches who lord it over their flocks and they intrude upon their personal liberties that Christians legitimately have in the Lord Jesus Christ. That does happen. There are such things as pharisaical leaders within the church. We admit that. And those who are under this kind of leadership ought to seek to work within those contexts to have these men dealt with and if they have the means to do so, they should, they should pursue whatever lines of, of, of communication and, and uh, authority, seeking higher authority to deal with these matters if they have those things available to them. But if they have nothing, to, they have no recourse along these lines, well, then they ought to leave that fellowship and find a faithful one. A faithful church. One with a biblical form of church government. Presbyterian church. There's no excuse, my friends, for these tyrannical elders. Really, they're the ones who ought to be under church discipline rather than dealing it out to others. But folks, just because there are unfaithful elders who administer church discipline in a sinful way doesn't mean that church discipline is altogether unbiblical or that it's not to be practiced. I mean, think about it. Just because there may be corrupt cops in a society who sometimes abuse their authority, doesn't give us the right to throw off all authority as though all cops are corrupt. That leads to chaos. Now, after uh, another uh, another failing aspect of church discipline today uh, can be seen in the fact that discipline doesn't seem to carry much weight in our current context with those who are under it. A lot of people don't think much about church discipline, and if they come under it, it's no big deal to them. Given the thousands of churches in existence today, and especially the many large megachurches of our day, a person can simply move on to the next church without ever having to own up to the fact that he or she is under the discipline of the church. And so because of this, those who remain unrepentant in their sins 
and who've been called out upon for in the church for their sins can just hop from church to church as they desire without ever being held accountable for their unrepentance. In fact, a person can attend one of those mega churches for years without ever even coming into contact with the eldership at all. And it's quite easy to do so because many churches today don't even have church membership. So people, again, can come and they can go as they please with no accountability. So given all these reasons, church discipline is not a popular practice in many corners of the church today. But if we desire, though, if we desire to be faithful, and as faithful as we can to the Lord Jesus Christ, we will take heed to what God's word has to teach us about this doctrine and how we can do our part in bringing him glory through it. Now, as I mentioned, the classic text on the subject of church discipline is the one we have before us this morning from Matthew 18. So if you, I hope you have that in front of you. We're going to now make our way through this text. And Lord willing, with the help of the Spirit, we will understand it. As we begin to consider this text, I'd like to first of all mention that uh, the goal or the aim of all church discipline is restoration or reconciliation. That's the the main goal of all church discipline is restoration or reconciliation. That goal is stated for us in our text in verse 15. The goal is to win your brother. To win your brother. Now, notice, the aim is not to remove difficult people from the church. That's not the aim of church discipline. It's not like, well, you know, we got some people we really uh, want out of our flock, so let's just uh, start the process of church discipline, right? No, it's not to remove. It's not simply to remove difficult people from the church. Rather, the goal is to reclaim or to restore those members who are going astray in their sin. So the goal of all church discipline, whether we're talking about that first step of it or the final step of it, is restoration, okay? Uh, Concerning this uh, goal and the purpose of church discipline, Robert Murray McShane once said the following about how it was that he came to see the positive value of church discipline, despite the fact that he was reluctant to practice it initially. Listen to what he said. He said, when I first entered upon the work of the ministry among you, I was exceedingly ignorant of the vast importance of church discipline. I thought that my great and almost only work was to pray and preach. I saw your souls to be so precious and the time so short that I devoted all my time and care and strength to labor in word and doctrine. When cases of discipline were brought before me and and the elders, I regarded them with something like abhorrence. It was a duty I shrank from, and I may truly say it nearly drove me from the work of the ministry among you altogether. But, he says, but it pleased God, who teaches his servants in another way than man teaches, to bless some of the cases of discipline to the manifest and undeniable conversion of the souls of those under our care. And from that hour, a new light broke in upon my mind, 
And I saw that if preaching be an ordinance of Christ, so is church discipline. I now feel very deeply persuaded that both are of God, that two keys are committed to us by Christ. The one, the key of doctrine, by means of which we unlock the treasures of the Bible. And the other key of discipline, by which we open or shut the way to the sealing ordinances of the faith. Both, he says, are Christ's gift, and neither is to be resigned or given up without sin. Well, the second thing I'd like to point out is the fact that church discipline is the responsibility of all Christians, not just the elders. It's the responsibility of all Christians, not just the elders. Indeed, it is true that only the elders of the church have the authority to pronounce binding judgments upon its members, but the fact is all Christians play a role in church discipline to some extent. Look again at our text. The text says clearly and plainly, if your brother sins, go and reprove him in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. And so the first step that we see before us in this text comes in the context of two members who are in the church, and we're told that this, uh, this matter of addressing the sin is to be done in a, in a private way. It's to be done privately. So all Christians have a responsibility to go to their brother or sister who has sinned and to talk to them privately about it. That's the first step. The first step. Go to your brother or sister privately. Notice, notice the Lord doesn't tell us, well, before you go to your brother, go and tell a bunch of other people about it before you, you talk to them. Along your way, go ahead and talk about it with whomever you want. No. No. He says, go to your brother in private and speak to your brother. Sadly, uh, I think you know this, it's not uncommon for people to be quick to tell others about the sins of others prior to going to their brother or sister. But folks, we must be careful to not add sin to sin by giving ourselves up to gossip and slander. Yeah, there might be true sin that you've seen in the life of another. You might have been offended by some sin or brother or sisters committed against you, but you are adding sin to that sin if you go and you just tell everybody else about it before you ever make your way to talk to the person who sinned against you, don't do that. Of course, there are times when we need to get counsel about a matter before we deal with that person, and that's, that's a little bit of a different thing, isn't it? And I trust you know by God's help and with God's help whether you're truly seeking counsel or if you're taking the opportunity to spread gossip or slander. No doubt about it, the, uh, there can be a fine line between these things sometimes, which is why we need to be very careful in how we go about these things. And we'll consider how we might be careful towards the end of the sermon. Now, in, in the case where he or she doesn't repent after you've gone to them in private, we are to go and take the second step, which is to bring along one or two others with us to meet with that person to straighten matters out, or to seek to straighten matters out. 
Now, some people think that the extra people mentioned here are, are, uh, are, we're told to take extra people here for the purpose of trying to persuade the person to repent of their sin. There may be certainly something to that. I'm not saying that that's not the case. But there's also perhaps another reason as to why you might take one or two other people with you to go and talk to that brother or sister. It seems to me at least part of the purpose of having others go with you is to have more people consider the issue. I mean, after all, the person confronting the brother could be the one who's off base. You might say, you know, I went and talked to so-and-so, and they're just not seeing it, man. You know, they're not, uh, they don't agree with me. Would you come with me and, and, and so I can confront them and have witnesses in the confrontation? And then you go there, and the people you brought with you say, brother, you are wrong. You're the one who's wrong. You're not seeing things clearly, Right? Perhaps there's a misunderstanding. Perhaps um, what the person thought was sin is not sin after all. But regardless, the scriptures teach that there is wisdom, right, in the plurality of counselors. So having a couple more people involved should, doesn't always, but should help resolve the issue. Now, thankfully, when it comes to church discipline, most of it typically ends either at step one, or here at step two. And thanks be to God that that's the case. So the elders then, in light of this, aren't the only ones to practice church discipline. We all have the responsibility to carry it out when needed. And, uh, and I emphasize here that it's to be carried out by all of us only when it's needed. Only when it's needed, <laughs> right? Some people, perhaps you know some people like this, are a bit overactive in searching for sin in the lives of others. And that's not what we're called to do as the people of God. We're not supposed to become private investigators in the lives of each other. And by the way, we don't have to confront each other either over every sin that we see a person commit. The scriptures do mention the fact that there are times when it is appropriate to allow love to cover over sin. Love for others, you see, should motivate us. And it should motivate us to cover over sin rather than being those people who want to expose it to the top of the hill. So that everybody else can see it because, I mean, after all, this was a sin committed against me. And I want everybody else to know. But praise be to God, the Lord doesn't expose all our sins in that same manner, so neither should we desire to do the same to our brothers or sisters. The scriptures also tell us, of course, that it is the glory of a man to overlook an offense. Now, while it is true that all sin is heinous in the eyes of God, it's also true that some sins are more heinous than others. And so if we've been sinned against, and it's a and it's not a gross or a major or what we would call a heinous sin against us, then in that situation, we have an option. We have the prerogative to either go ahead and go to that person and confront them over that sin they've committed, or to simply forgive them and allow love to cover it over. You see, my friends, consider what the church would be like if we were to go about confronting one another over every perceived sin that we see. What would church life look like in that kind of a context? Well, I can tell you what it looked like. I wouldn't want to be around you. 
You wouldn't want to be around anybody else that way either. There would be a few people here in this, in this uh, gathering this morning if we were just constantly uh, looking into each other's lives and trying to, trying to find out sin in each other's lives and, and uh, calling out every little sin that we see going on in each other's lives. That's no way to live. Another thing to consider is that the only basis, the only basis for reproving somebody is if they've actually sinned. That's important. This is really important. We're dealing with sin. That which is truly sin, not just perceived sin or not just things that you think might be sin, but that which is sin. And what is sin? What is sin? Any want of conformity unto or transgression against the law of God. So the law of God is what tells us what is sin and what is not sin. God's word is what defines what sin is. It's not just what you think is sin or you think is wrong. It's what does God call sin, right? What does God call sin? And so we shouldn't initiate or try to confront somebody simply because we don't like them or simply because we don't like the way they talk or we don't like their view on a particular subject. That's no basis for confrontation and calling out sin. I mentioned this at the Bible study. You've probably heard it before, but we need to understand that there is not an 11th commandment. Some people seem to think so, that the 11th commandment is, well, thou shalt not offend me. It's not in God's law. There's no, there's no, that's not sin because you don't like the way a person talks or their, their mannerisms or just something that rubs you wrong about them. That's not the basis for pursuing this line of confrontation. It's only when an actual sin has been committed do we have then proper grounds for calling somebody to repentance. We should also note that when we're dealing with sin within the body, it's always best to try and deal with matters as quickly as possible. To try and deal with matters as quickly as possible. Whether we are the ones who've committed the sin or we're the ones who've been sinned against, the scriptures encourage us to settle matters in a timely way. In Matthew chapter 5, We're told there that if we come to worship and we suddenly realize that we've sinned against somebody, that we're to leave worship and go and be reconciled to our brother. Some people uh, seem to apply this only to the uh, services where you have the Lord's Supper. That's not the context. It says if you're in worship and there you realize there's an issue between you and your brother, sin issue, not just disagreements, then you're supposed to leave worship. That's how important it is. You're to go be reconciled to your brother before coming to the worship of God. And so based on that, we see then that it's um, God's will for us to try and deal with matters in, in, in a timely way, to not just let things go on indefinitely for uh, day after day and week after week, Right? And, and, and do you see the wisdom of our God in how he prescribes dealing with uh, sin within the body of Christ? 
You notice, whether you're talking about Matthew 5 or, or Matthew 18, whether you're the one who's sinned or you're the one who's sinned against, no, mat- no matter which party you are in the matter, you have the responsibility to go and be reconciled to your brother. You understand that? You can't just sit back and say, well, I'll deal with it when he or she comes to me. Well, that already shows that you know that there's an issue. If you already know that there's some sin between you and that other person, you have the duty to go to your brother or sister and to deal with it, right? You don't just get to, re- to say, well, uh, I'm not doing it until they, until they come to me. There's no place for that. That's how important reconciliation is. That's how important relationships are within the body of Christ. You see, perceived wrongs, by God's grace, he, does not, he, would, he would not have us to allow perceived wrongs to just fester. He wouldn't have us to allow grudges uh, to just be uh, among us. Or, to, or not, uh, not allow uh, you know, grudges to, to take root in our hearts, which will eventually then lead to other sins like, like slander and gossip and, and having bitterness in our heart towards one another. Because that's the fruit of not dealing with sin. And so the more time that you allow to go by, the more prone you will be to hold a grudge. The more prone you will be to become bitter and then to spread slander or gossip about a person. God's word tells us that we are not to allow the sun to go down on our anger. Which means then that we are to deal with relationship issues in a timely manner. Consider, if you would, how much tension and alienation would be avoided if we were just more faithful in dealing with things as God has commanded us to deal with them. Well, so far we have uh, given attention to the first two steps within the disciplinary process. The third step is to be taken if the brother or sister still has not repented after the first two steps. So real sin uh, has been committed. Uh, We've gone to the brother to confront them about it. The uh, brother did not or sister did not uh, 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 you uh, repent of it. So you take your brother, another brother or sister with you to go talk to that person about it. If they still don't uh, repent, well, then you, you go to the third step. And the third step is to take the matter to the church, which is to say you take the matter to the elders. Now, I won't develop it uh, much this morning, but if you go to Matthew 16, 18, and uh, then you compare it with Matthew 18, 18 to 20, you'll notice that the authority of the keys of the kingdom is something that Jesus has given specifically to the elders of the church. So in the third step then, the elders are to consider the matter and they are then to confront the one who has sinned and if the person still yet refuses to repent, the elders are to make that matter public at that point. It becomes a public matter. And if the person remains unrepentant, then the final step is taken, and the person is to be counted, we are told, as a Gentile and a tax collector. And by that is meant that he or she is to be treated like an unbeliever, as somebody who is outside the covenant community. He or she is no longer to be treated as though they are a brother or sister of the family. 
Now surely you can see, my friends, this is no light judgment. This pronouncement is no light pronouncement. When the elders make a pronouncement like this, it is a pronouncement not just of men. It is the king of the church himself making the pronouncement. He's declaring it. Furthermore, in Matthew 16 and also 18, Jesus clearly says that whatever is bound or loosed on earth by the elders is bound or loosed in heaven. So those judgments which the elders render, which have been arrived at according to God's word, are then the very judgments of God himself. This is a very serious thing. Anybody who takes lightly the judgment of Christ's church does so to his or her own peril. It's also worth noting at this point that um, excommunication Uh, has been a practice within the church from her beginning. This isn't something new that, uh, again, that men have dreamt up or even something that's new to the New Testament. Uh, Excommunication has been a practice in the church from the beginning. You can even go back to the very beginning with our first parents and you see it, right? There's a sense in which we could say our first parents, Adam and Eve, were excommunicated. They were excommunicated when they were expelled from God's presence and cast out of the Garden of Eden. Not long after that, one of their children, Cain, was also then expelled from living among the covenant community. During the time of Moses, there was, we find in the scriptures, a threat to the unrepentant that should they remain in their unrepentance, they would be cut off from Israel. That's the same as excommunication. And ever since those days, from the time of the beginning, this has been a censure that has been practiced within the context of the church. So certainly not a new concept that we're dealing with here this morning. Another thing to consider at this point are the grounds for excommunication. The grounds for excommunication. The grounds for excommunication is the person's refusal to acknowledge his or her sin and to repent of it. In other words, the grounds for excommunication is really not just the fact that somebody's a sinner. We're all sinners. Okay? Every member of this church is a sinner, myself included. We sin daily in thought, word, and deed. But what is at stake here is when a person has been confronted about their sin and many attempts, both in private and public, have been made, and they yet remain obstinate and refuse to repent, it is then that you have grounds for excommunication. So it's a state of unrepentance. It's not just the fact that they have sinned, but it's that they remain obstinate in that sin, unrepentant in that sin, after having been confronted about that sin by individuals, privately, by uh, a company of a couple, two or three or more, and also by the elders. So those are the grounds for excommunication. Now, when we take up this subject of church discipline, it is helpful, I think, to to note that there are two forms of church discipline. 
Um, one is preventive, and the other is what we call corrective. Preventive and cor corrective. Uh, so far through the sermon this morning, we've considered the corrective form. Okay, the corrective form, that's what you do when sin has been committed and you go confront them and you're hoping for change, right? You're hoping for repentance. But there's also such a thing as preventive discipline. And preventive discipline comes in the form of tending to the means of grace. Tending to the means of grace. In other words, when we're faithful in reading the scriptures and meditating upon God's word as we should... When we're praying, as we know we should, and when we're faithful in participating in the sacraments, as we should, God can use those means in such a way that it prevents us from falling under the corrective form of church discipline. The means of grace are a preventive form, then, of church discipline. If you're, you're doing those things and you're being taught by God's word and you're spending time in communion with the Lord in prayer, and you're partaking of the sacraments as the Lord has given them to us. He can use that to build you up and strengthen you in your faith and in your walk with him so that you don't fall in such a way that you have come under the corrective form of discipline. It also comes in the form of sitting under the regular preaching of the word or sitting regularly under the preaching of the word. As we sit under the preached word, what, what, what occurs? Well, we're taught. We're taught how to live. We're taught what we're to believe concerning God, but we're also taught what duties God requires of us. So the more we are under the word of God and learning what God's word has to teach us about how to live, God can use that, again, just as he, could, he can do the same when you're private readings and your family, times of reading in a family worship, but he also does it in a marvelous way, through the proclamation of the word from Lord's Day to Lord's Day. Okay? Of course, another way in which we see the preventive form of this discipline is seen in the practice of elder visitation within the context of the church. As the elders visit families within the congregation, it's sort of like having um, a, a, a checkup with your doctor, right? You go to your doctor, you have your annual checkup. Uh, how are you doing? What are some of the things that are troubling you? How can we help you? How can we, how can we be praying for you? And perhaps there's issues within the context of the family that, that uh, are brought up in the context of the meeting with the elders, and the elders have opportunity then to deal with it before it gets too far down the road to become uh, necessary for a corrective form of discipline. Your elders can give you counsel on how to deal with the matters that you're dealing with in those contexts. Now, before we move on, or as we move on, I should say we, we, we do well to take just a, a few more moments uh, to consider some of the other purposes behind church discipline, some other, more, some other purposes behind church discipline. Uh, one purpose of church discipline uh, is to guard the purity of the church. It's to guard the purity of the church. By dealing with sin in the church, her purity is guarded by not allowing the impurities of sin to mar her beauty. It also helps to take away ammunition from the enemy that he might use against the church, right? And you've, perhaps you've seen it uh, happen when uh, you see situations going on in a church and the church fails to deal with some sin within the context of the church. Well, what happens? But the world comes along and they mock the church. They make fun of her and they call us hypocrites. 
You preach one thing and you guys don't really believe it because it's not exercised within your contexts, right? And so when you practice church discipline faithfully, it helps to guard the purity of the church. Now, we're not saying we, you never, on this side of glory, are going to have an absolutely pure church. There's always sin within the, the body of Christ uh, on this side of glory. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, when, you, when you have certain sins pop up and they become public in nature and you don't deal with them, well, that gives the enemy occasion to blaspheme. Another purpose of church discipline is to preserve or to safeguard the church from the spread of sin, to guard her from the spread of sin. By dealing with sin and expelling those or excommunicating those who refuse to repent when they've been confronted, the church is protected from the spread of that sin. You see, sin is like gangrene, right? In fact, Paul even mentions that he, he put out Hymenius and Alexander from the church to prevent their sin from spreading like gangrene. That was one of the reasons they did what they did. Well, just like gangrene and dealing with gangrene, the only way to prevent the spread of the disease is to cut off the bad parts. Okay? So when it comes to that part in the discipline of the church and you have an unrepentant sinner, the best thing to do for the sake of the good of the church is to cut off that limb. Paul also, you remember, reminds us that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. And so when sin is allowed to run rampant in a church, you can be sure that that sin will spread to other members. Like dumb sheep, when we see others committing sin without any repercussions, we somehow misunderstand that to mean that, uh, well, it's okay to commit that sin. Apparently the elders don't care about it. Apparently other people don't deal with it. Nobody's being confronted about it. So it must be okay. And so people just, yeah, follow suit. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to, you know, it must be all right. I mean, after all, if it were truly a terrible thing, surely somebody would say something about it, right? Along these same lines, dealing with sin through church discipline is also a safeguard in that it serves as a warning to others who are tempted to sin in those ways to not do it. A deterrent, in other words. Consider what Paul says in 1 Timothy 5.20. He says, Those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all, and here's the reason to do it, so that the rest also may be fearful of sinning. Let me read that again. Those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all, so that the rest also may be fearful of sinning. He tells the elders to publicly rebuke those who continue on in their sin unrepentantly, so that others will take note of that and be fearful themselves of doing likewise. Now, unsurprisingly, that's the same principle we find taught in the Older Testament, right? When you read through the Older Testament, you'll notice that the Lord tells us that when people undergo corrective or even punitive uh, discipline, one of the purposes for it is to serve as a deterrent so that others won't commit the same or similar sins or crimes. Okay? And that's true civilly as well as ecclesiastically. Another purpose of church discipline 
is to safeguard the church from having judgment come upon the congregation. To safeguard from the safeguard of the church from having a judgment of God come upon it, come upon the church or the congregation. We read earlier from Joshua seven and the very sad and tragic situation with Achan. And we read there how Achan's sin had brought God's wrath, not just upon him, not just upon his immediate family, but even upon Israel as a whole. What a very sad and tragic situation that was. Many people died from their, as a result of that one man's sin. Paul says... That failure to, to discipline can result in even congregational sickness and even uh, end up becoming a matter where we uh, experience death. He tells us about that in the context of observing the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians 11, 30 and 31, For this reason, many of you are weak and sick, and a number sleep, that is, a number of you die, uh, but, he says, if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. The judgment of God would not come upon us if we judge ourselves rightly. And so the opposite is, is the case as well, right? If we don't judge ourselves rightly, we are subject to the judgment of God within the context of the church. Jesus warns the church in Thyatira that his frown is upon them. And he's frowning upon them because of their failure to discipline a false teacher in their midst. We read about that in chapter 2, verses um, 20 to 23. Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 5, verses 25 and 26, the Lord is, is speaking through the prophet. And he says, your iniquities have turned these away and your sins have withheld good from you. For wicked men are found among my people. They watch like fowlers lying in wait. They set traps and they catch men. Wicked people, wicked men are among my people, God says. And because that's the case, judgment is coming upon them. When sin isn't dealt with as it should be, we endanger the church. Of course, another purpose of church discipline is one that was mentioned as the goal or aim, uh, which is to reclaim those who are disobedient. I mentioned that at the outset. We need to understand that that needs to be ever before us. That always has to be ever before, it has to be at the front center of our mind when we're talking about the purpose of church discipline. It's to, again, to win our brother. Paul says it in a different way in 2 Thessalonians 3.14. He says, and if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, he says, take special note of that man. Do not associate with him that he may be put to shame. But what's the purpose of putting him to shame? To reclaim him. So he will become ashamed of what he's done and seek to be restored. And my friends, it's also extremely important that we understand that in, this, in the context of dealing with sin in the church, anybody who's coming under any of these steps of confrontation over sin, we need to understand that there is always, all throughout any steps along the way in this process, there is always forgiveness to be had. 
You're never too far gone to not be restored so long as you live on this side of glory, this side of the grave. At every step along the way, the door is always open, always open to find forgiveness and to experience restoration and reconciliation. Even when it comes to the final step of excommunication, our Father in heaven, praise be to him, is pleased to welcome back into the fold those who have strayed away. I'm reminded of the prodigal son. The father's waiting out there. He's open arms. He's so delighted that his son has come back home. That's always open to the sinner. Let me conclude this morning by sharing with you some pastoral insights that um, I've uh, gleaned from, or not gleaned, I'm going to actually use from Pastor David Murray uh, in his work on the subject. And in these final comments, you'll notice some encouragement that he gives to us by way of the attitude and the spirit that we ought to have uh, when we are uh, in the midst of the process of exercising church discipline. And I offer the following to you in his words, and we'll conclude with these quotes. He first of all reminds us that as we go through this process, we need great love. We need great love. He says, notice that the context for the church discipline passage in Matthew 18 is of caring for Christ's little ones. That's in verses 1 to to 10 of the chapter. That's the context. The first part of that is dealing with the caring for little ones, Christ's little ones. And then of the shepherd pursuing the lost sheep in verses 11 to 14 of that same chapter. And so he says we need a loving motive to win back the brother or sister to Christ, but also a loving manner saying the right words in the right place at the right time. If at any time, he says, we find ourselves lacking a loving motive and manner, it's time to pause and to go no further, as without love, we will do a lot of damage. Remember, Christ says that if we offend one of his little ones, it would have been better for us to have a large millstone hung around our neck and cast into the sea. We need great love. We also need great carefulness. Great carefulness. He says again, I want to emphasize the need for extreme care in following the three-step biblical process that we find in Matthew 18. The benefits, he says, of this three-step process are that the offended person is made to ask themselves, is this serious enough to warrant the next step. If we're careful, we'll ask ourselves that question. Is this serious enough to warrant the next step? The accused person is then made to realize the increasing gravity of the matter. And witnesses to the earlier steps are able then to testify to the church courts at the later stages if it's required. But perhaps the greatest benefit is that it stops frivolous matters being brought before the elders, especially by those who lack the Christian love and courage to approach fellow Christians first before going public. 
Now, of course, he says, if the sin is public knowledge, then the Matthew 18 instructions about private offenses does not necessarily apply. However, as some people whose sins are well known will will still try to use non-compliance with Matthew 18 to criticize their, for instance, their pastor or their church, it's often wise to at least try a private approach first. That's even in the context of public sin. Next, he tells us we need great courage. So we need great love, we need great carefulness, we need great courage. He says, I don't know anyone who looks forward to church discipline. Surely, most, if not all of us, have an aversion to the mental, the emotional, and the spiritual demands of dealing with sin in someone's life. Most of us draw back. Some will do anything rather than deal with these situations. And often the motive is not love for the person, but fear of the person. Or fear of their family. Or fear of the consequences within the congregation of dealing with sin. We need, he says, the Lord to give us courage to face sin. To do something about sin. To do it in the right way, persevere through the stress, effect appropriate sanctions, admonishment, rebuke, censures, suspensions, and excommunication, etc., and to take appropriate actions. We also need great humility. We need great humility. If we could be humble enough to realize that we ourselves could fall into the worst sins, as Paul says in Galatians 6, it would give a much more loving flavor to all of our attitudes and actions. We need great humility. We also need great wisdom. We need great wisdom. He says, I've never been involved in a straightforward church discipline case. They've always involved complicating factors like counter-accusations, denials, excuses, lack of evidence, etc. We need so much wisdom, he says, to know how to proceed, what questions to ask, where the truth lies, etc. How much we should be praying for the wisdom that God has promised to his perplexed people, as we see in James 1.5, Which brings us then to our next and final point. We also need great prayer. We need great prayer. We often quote Matthew 18, 19 about the Lord's promised presence where two or three are gathered in his name. However, we often fail to realize that the immediate context is that of church discipline. It's not people met in a weekly prayer meeting or weekly worship service, but people met to exercise church discipline, and they do so with prayer and with the promise of the presence of God's Spirit. So we, of course, pray for prevention, but we also pray for love, courage, carefulness, humility, and wisdom in all that we say and do. We need help to be perfectly and consistently just, showing neither favoritism nor prejudice. And of course, we pray for a successful outcome where sin will be confessed, 
and repented of, and the sinner will be encouraged and helped to a more holy and useful life once again. And so my brothers and sisters, may the Lord grant us then the grace to rightly understand and to practice this particular mark of the church, that we might do so to the glory of God. Amen. Please take up your Psalters now.